Hi, you're listening to the Inside Family Law podcast. I'm Zoe Durand, and um, I'm here today um, who, with the woman who really, truly is the woman of the moment, um, Talia Blyer. Um, she's the lawyer who has had carriage of uh, a case that you probably have heard about. Um, it's the uh, High Court case, um, which was determining the issue of parentage for a known sperm donor. So um, do you want to just tell me a bit about what's happened in the last few days, Talia? on your podcast again, Zoe. Um, what happened in the last few days was that on Wednesday, the 19th of June, the High Court handed down their decision in the case of Matthew and Parsons. So it was heard eight weeks ago in Canberra over two days. And amazingly, um, we got a judgment in eight weeks, which is uh, amazing in itself. Mm. And I'm very, very glad for, for the parties that a resolution, um, or, you know, some closure was given to them quickly. But... What they found was that a my client, who was a known sperm donor, um, set out who set out on a journey to co-parent a child with his best friend of 25 years, um, is legally recognised as a parent of his daughter. Where previously um, there seemed to be some uncertainty where within the um, the family court about whether he could be a parent or not. Mm-hmm. So that's a big win for you guys. Were you surprised with the outcome? I was surprised that the judgment came so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was n- not surprised at the outcome because I think it's the right outcome. Mm. So it was what I was hoping the outcome would be. And mm. the reason why is because my hope was, and I, and I trusted the, the court ultimately, that the common sense would prevail. Mm. So I hoped that the high court would see that in this circumstance, in the case of my client and his daughter, there was clearly always the intention that he would be a parent mm. and he's been playing the role of a parent for 11 years. So sure. it would be incongruent if the outcome was that he couldn't be a parent when for all intents and purposes and for every um, meaning of the word parent or dad, he has been a parent and a dad. Um, it wouldn't have made sense if legally he couldn't be a parent. I really like what you're saying about the common sense approach. I mean, the thing is, this is what I find interesting, you know, that that some people have come up to me and said, oh, my goodness, now this means, you know, if you just use a random sperm donor, they're going to be, you know. And I've sort of felt that it's been a bit misunderstood in that regard because the thing is, as you said, your client specifically, he wasn't just a sperm donor. Like he also played, was intended to, and lived that role of being a parent as well. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And and the High Court made it absolutely clear in their judgment that it is not the case that every sperm donor would be considered a parent. Sure. They've made it very, very clear. What they've said is that the term sperm donor suggests someone who does nothing more than provide semen to facilitate artificial conception and then have nothing to do with the child. What they've said here is that you can't use the term sperm donor to define someone who has had a role in a child's life as a parent. So where where there's comments have been made, particularly in the media, about um, all of a sudden now sperm donors being at risk of being recognised as a parent, which respect is just not true mm. because that's not what the case decided. The case decided that if someone is involved in, a ch- in their child's life as a parent, they can legally be recognised as such, irrespective of the fact that the child was conceived 
by artificial conception as opposed to natural conception or sexual intercourse. Well, I was going to ask you, does this mean, for example, if there was someone who was involved to the level that your client was in a child's life but they weren't a sperm donor, I mean, could like does that sort of relate, does this case relate to them as well? Well, not really because if so, if two people have conceived a child naturally, the the, the issue doesn't really arise because mm. they're a parent from the from the, the starting point. They're a parent, so all this has really done is said that if if a, um, a man and a woman conceive a child by artificial conception, that they can be recognised as a parent despite the fact it was artificial conception. Whereas previously. Um, you know, obviously we know the state position was saying that, well, not was saying, does say that a, a donor is not a parent or a father. Um, but the Family Law Act was a bit more grey. And we've just been given clarity that the greyness in the family court is there for a reason, and that is to um, ensure mm. that the, the definition of parent can be, or is expansive and can be considered on a case-by-case basis. I mean, this ties in a bit to the first interview that we did, which actually was the first interview I did at all for the podcast, you know, where yeah, I spoke about, yeah. the, we were, you were saying, well, is, has it been left intentionally open to deal, to be elastic, to deal with sort of social different change, you know, social changes in different families? Yeah. And, and it turns out perhaps it has, you know, that, that, that yeah, is what it I is. Think, yeah, and I think that's amazing. I think that, um, you know, the Family Law Act certainly has its faults, and I'm, I'm not always its champion, but... In this case, in the way that it's been drafted to involve or include an expansive definition or an elastic, I like that word, the elastic definition of parent, I think that's great. I think it's, a, it's the right result because if the undercurrent or the primary consideration in the act is the best interest of children, mm. the definition of parent has to be elastic so mm. that the child's best interest in each individual case can be considered and can be um you know, less as the paramount consideration. I, yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I mean, this is getting slightly off topic, so I'll just I delve into this very lightly and then we'll go back onto topic. It's like sometimes other practitioners in other areas say, well, you know, we don't really – family law – I mean, no offence, Zoe, but it's one of those areas that people see it as a bit wishy-washy and it's a bit like kind of what I was saying, like it's – is it that – you know, it's not as sort of hard line. It's, it's not – you know, there's, there's this elasticity. But then what they don't understand is that when you're dealing with family, sometimes you need some scope or, like, like I said, to sort of be able to look at the specific circumstances in, in a specific case and make a decision Absolutely. that that is the right decision, and you can't always have, you know, two plus two is four in every case. You know what I mean? And this is the hard yeah, line. Exactly, exactly. And fam- families are dynamic. Children are dynamic. You know, what may be in their best interest in when they're five years old could also be very different to their best interest at seven years old. Absolutely. So just in, yeah. in that, you know, how could it be that you could have a a, a situation that it's not dynamic and elastic, um, and can be um, uh, considered on it? on a case-by-case basis because it knows two families are the same. Mm, absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of, I guess, um, the positives coming out of this case, like this this judgment yeah. you've received, what are the positives that you see in terms of, like, for families going forward, for, for people um, that are in similar situations? I think the key positive or the key takeaway here is that if two people, friends, decide they want to embark upon a co-parenting journey, we no longer have to give them the advice that the birth mother will be a legal parent and the highest we can take the donor, for lack of a better word, um, 
is is you know equal shared parental responsibility because previously that was sure. the best we could get for them. Um, the positive here is that they can now be recognised or they are recognised as a legal parent, providing they're fulfilling that role and there's an intention to do so. Um, mm. Is my reading of the of the High Court's judgment. So I think that's a beautiful takeaway um, because it just gives them certainty about their status and uh, in relation to their child, which is going to have low-on effects in the future for things like, um, you know, enrolling in schooling or taking mm. kids to the doctor and those sorts of things. They, they may not have to, you know, pull out a, a minute of consent or <laughs> order of the court to show their parental responsibility, which is not a term that, that many institutions are familiar with. So I think that's a great takeaway. Um, but, you know, I think that there is also a... Uh, we have to take the good with the, with the bad. I was going to say, what are the negatives? Hate, hate them, yeah, yeah, I hate to use the word bad, but um, what what we do get from this judgment is also a large amount of uncertainty mm. about where the line is drawn now. At what point does a donor of genetic material to a child become a parent? Is it the case that there has to be an intention prior to conception? Mm. Is it that... Um, they have to be involved for X number of years, is it they have to see a child X number of times. I mean, I think it's impossible to have a prescriptive list of when you sure. tick the box to, to be from to go from being a donor to a parent. Um, so I think that, that this case has unlocked a little bit of uncertainty in that regard. But I think it's a fantastic opportunity for the family court to to develop case law, which will happen over time naturally as these cases come before the court, but also a fantastic opportunity for law reform to start thinking about, well, what process or procedure can we put in place to acknowledge modern families and um, co-parenting arrangements that are not uh, necessarily born from a romantic relationship between mm. the parents. Um, I know we talked about it last time, Zoe, but my ideal, and I know this, this has been discussed quite a bit in the media in the last few days by um, experts and um, professors in the field is the idea of perhaps having a preconception agreement. So mm. having legislation that sets the baseline as sperm donors are sperm donors, but if you don't intend to be a donor in that you're embarking on a co-parenting journey with a friend um, or whoever it might be, that you have an agreement you enter into prior to conceding the child by IVF and then that agreement sets out everyone's intent, sets out what the involvement will be, perhaps what the spend time arrangements will be that that may be, you know, codified in, in a minute of order post birth. Um, I, you know, I've, I've done similar cases like that, but it would be great to have perhaps law reform so there's a firm framework for that occurring um, for certainty of when um, you are tr- you are a donor in the in the sense of the word that the High Court has now defined, or whether you are a parent. Not dissimilar to something like the Surrogacy Act that we have in New South Wales, firm preconditions about what must happen prior to um, a parentage order being made in the Supreme Court. Mm. Um, and I suppose though, if things change from that, I mean, as you say, it, this is not you know this. Whilst there would be that framework, it would also yeah. be the reality of what actually was then lived out. I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, so, so we need to um, to think about how it, how it looked in that sense of what's actually playing out because 
preconception agreements won't tick the box in every case because, like we like we mentioned, Zoe, families are dynamic and mm. it might be an intention. There might be one intent prior to conception, but something different ends up happening. And ultimately, um, if a dispute arose about that, then we'd end up um, parties would end up seeking clarity in the court. But perhaps there's a framework that we can put in place. To help prevent disputes for most that, people. To help prevent it. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and any of those agreements, preconception or otherwise, I mean, I've been telling clients to do it for a very long time, but uh, certainly it's a precondition for surrogacy is the importance of the parties having counselling mm. if they're thinking about entering into co-parenting arrangements. Um, um, and not even just co-parenting arrangements, but if they're thinking about donating sperm and want to have nothing to do with the, the child, they also need to think about the importance of counselling because mm. I don't think anyone can properly, and I, I don't have children, but from from anecdotal discussions I've had with people that have children, they've said that you don't know how your children are going to feel about your your baby or until you hold them in your arms. Yeah. So, there needs to be thorough, detailed counselling um, so that everyone is really thinking carefully about what it is they're entering into, be it a co-parenting arrangement or that they truly do want to donate and, you know, what happens if they do end up wanting to have a relationship? How is this all going to look? Um, so, uh, look, it's very clear just from, from what we're chatting about. That sure. There is uncertainty that comes from it, but, um, you know... I think the, the the key thing that we get here from from the High Court's decision is that common sense should really prevail and the child's best interest should prevail. Mm. If, if, if it's everyone's reality that someone is, um, that, you know, a, a man and his child have a uh, father-daughter relationship then, or, a, you know, a mother-daughter relationship, whatever it may be, then, then the law should be able to recognise that. Yeah, I really like that you said like just cutting it back because it's easy to get wound up in everything. But if you just look at it really simply, it is like a common sense approach and looking at like making legal what the reality is. And the reality is, and, and you know, I want to make this clear because I think it has been to, to some extent slightly misinterpreted. Your client wasn't just a sperm donor. You know, some people are like sperm donors are now parents. It's like he wasn't just a sperm donor. Like I remember you said he yeah. was doing school tuck shop. He was doing cello, like school yeah. pickup, all this sort of parent was stuff. Never intended. It was never intended that he's just be a sperm donor. From, you know, prior to, to conceiving the child, he was always going to be dad and mm. um, fulfill the role of a parent because that was um, it, it was pretty much a, a make or break for him because of his background and his family relationship. It was not negotiable that he be an active parent in his child's life; otherwise, he never would have done it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. It, it's not. It's not a case of. The, the beautiful headline, which is sperm donors are now parents. <laughs> it's, it's not at all, not at all what this case has, has determined or found. Because that could also have implications, like if that were the reality, for, like the other way, like in terms of creating anxiety for those that were donors and just wanted to be just donors, you know, they might be That's reading this and going right. back the other way as well and going, what the heck am I going to be, you know, like, does this? what does this mean for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's exactly right. And there, I, I mean, there's an issue in this country with a shortage of donor sperm mm. um, for 
same-sex couples, for example, or single women who want to have a child um, themselves. You know, I'm not yeah. talking co-parenting, I'm talking about just having a child. There's shortages of donor sperm, and um, this case has to be reported upon properly because we don't want um, it to be misconstrued or misunderstood so that people are deterred from donors. Let's not scare the donors away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it, it's just, you know, it's not... It's absolutely not a, a risk because particularly if you donate them through a clinic, um, we have unknown donor laws in this country. And when I say unknown, you're unknown until your child, the, the child that is born as a result of your genetic material turns 18, at which point they can contact their donor if they want to. But you're unknown through their entire childhood and there is no risk that you would be recognised as a father or a parent in that sense. Yeah. Um, and and ultimately that if any and then on the flip side, if there are any women that are concerned about the potential of the donor of genetic material becoming recognised as a parent, then mm. that is the option available to them as well. Is use an unknown donor. Um, you know, we, though we don't need to obviously go into the debate of the, the benefits or disadvantages of having an owner or an unknown donor sure. to the child. Because we never know what the child is, what is going to be important to the child, um, of course, as well until the child is born. But um, there are certainly options available um, if people are concerned about um, about this. What what has happened for for Robert Mason in this case happening to someone else? It's, you know, circumstances are very different, and I guess it reinforces the importance of those agreements if you can get them, but also just legal advice. Yeah, legal advice. Mm. Any type of journey of conceiving a child through artificial um, insemination. So you mentioned um, some sort of ideas for reform. Do you have any other thoughts about reform at either you know either state or federal in in any regard? Oh well, actually, that's a good question because we haven't even touched on the state um, side of things. Is I think that the decision in this case urges states to start to reconsider their status of children legislation Mm. um, because what the High Court has said, without getting into the complicated constitutional side of it, but they basically said that um, the state laws are are kind of um, in opposition to what the family law can do. So I guess what what is possible here is that um, someone may be recognised as a parent for the purposes of family law legislation, but... Um, maybe not by way of state legislation, um, and that may have implications depending on child support legislation and obligations for financially supporting children. So um, I think that it's a great opportunity for the states to reconsider now what their, their legislation says in this regard. Because, of course, if someone's recognised as a parent under federal legislation, they, um, you know, what comes with that is obligations to pay child support yep. and maintain your child and all the rest of it. and Absolutely, that's the case, and I and I think, um, yeah, and I'm I'm almost willing to say in 100% of the cases that if someone is recognised as a parent and wants to to fulfil the role of a parent in their child's life, they would have absolutely no objection to being required under legislation to pay child support. You you would you would hope, but um. <laughs> Child support, uh, you know, 
for the last 11 years and maintaining his child. So. All right. Well, yeah. look, um, any other thoughts at all about, um, you know, we've talked about the positives, the possible, you know, risks um, following this, this decision, ideas for reform and, and the fact that, you know, and you and I said before this interview that you really wanted to get the point across that this this case is, you know, limited to it doesn't suddenly mean the floodgates are open for every donor to be considered a parent. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, exa- that's exactly right. It doesn't, it doesn't open the floodgates. It confirms the, the status of uh, as legal parents in limited circumstances. And, and this case is, of course, at the, um, it's at the extreme end of the spectrum um, in, when you look at involvement of of traditionally, traditionally what you would call donors in children's lives because um, he's not a donor, he's a, a parent. Mm. And so I guess you, your client must be pretty um, relieved with the outcome, although this is really just the it's, – it's still continuing, isn't it, this matter in terms of um, the issue of the – if you know, the well, actually, the travel to New Zealand, is that right, the relocation to New Zealand? Well, it's all, it's all done now. It's um, done now, sorry. To the, to the best my ignorance. Of my, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 you're right. To the best of my knowledge, it's all done. The, um, the full court had remitted the proceedings for rehearing, yeah, yeah. but they had not been officially remitted pending the outcome of the High Court case. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, and, sure. Yeah, and so the High Court's decision was that it was to discharge the order that um, had remitted it. So, so this is the end of the road, um, certainly, and, and at the very least in relation to the issue of who is a parent. Um, uh, and ultimately the matter becomes just like any other family law matter that's finalised um, by way of final orders that, you know, if anything was to arise again, it would arise through um, your normal circumstances and go through the vice national process and all the rest. Yeah. Um, but no, that's it. That's it. There's no move to New Zealand um, uh, on the cards. Mm, okay. Um, no, sorry. Thank you for clarifying that. I must admit, I must. I've been a bit ignorant on that. I was a bit confused when I was looking through everything as to whether or not yeah. that was still, yeah. you know, an issue. Absolutely. Um, any other? Anything else you want to add about this this matter at all, or you think you've covered it off in terms of discussions about the reform and the, and the consequences, reform, potential for reform and consequences of it? Four years, yeah. yeah? Four, it, four it, years. Four and a half years of litigation. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Um, and what what's on the cards for you now? For me as well. <laughs> what's on the cards for you now? Um, as I was going to say, what's on the cards for you now? Um, just back to normal. <laughs> now this is matters yeah, over. That's right. Focus on their children. All right. Well, look. Um, if anyone is looking for legal advice, um, obviously, um. Talia is um, very experienced, as you can see, having run this matter. Um, and she's at Steiner Legal if you did want to get in touch with her. Um, and No, 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 my pleasure. Um, and and um, I'm Zoe Durand. I'm, I'm the principal of Mediation Answers. I'm always happy to hear from people as well. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And, look, you never know. I'm sure we'll hear from you again, Talia, at some point. You're always doing something interesting. <laughs> Thank you, Zoe. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast again. Pleasure. Thank you.